turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm not going to read all of the confession at the forefront this time. I'm going to read most of it toward the beginning and then read the remainder later, um, and you'll hopefully see why. Let's first turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll be reading together verses 1 to 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints, by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, we ask that you would, that you would help us to understand and believe your holy word. Even those complex things concerning your church, concerning um, what we would call a, the invisible and visible church distinction. Lord, some complex areas of what scripture teaches, but help us, we pray, to understand, to grow in grace, and to even grow in our assurance of our faith in Christ. For we ask these things in the blessed name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. In my journey uh, to find what I, I would say to find Presbyterianism, uh, I departed from Roman Catholicism. And in departing from Roman Catholicism, um, I found there were many churches that I was visiting that had different things that just didn't fit well. Um, sometimes in one particular church, there was works righteousness being taught. If you're not in the door, every time it's open, you're not right with God. Well, what do you do if they have a two-week-long revival and that church doors are open every day for two weeks straight? How are you going to pass your exams? And how, or if you have a job and you have to work at night and you can't make it, are you not right with God because you didn't make it that, that some evening during the week? You know, it really... It really uh, Things like that really turned me off because I knew that those things were not right. Uh, one particular church that I uh, attended for some many months was the Church of Christ. And I, I liked the preaching. I liked the people. One thing I really appreciated in that church was that people of different ethnicities were all gathered together, worshiping the Lord together. I don't know how uh, that came about, but that was a wonderful thing. And I, I had some dear friends there. Um, however, when talking with the pastor and having a one-on-one -on -one visit with the pastor, he basically said that only their baptism was legitimate. Every other church in all of Christendom had a baptism that was not legitimate. So all of you who've been baptized in, in the Presbyterian Church or baptized elsewhere, your baptism is not recognized by God, according to them. Um, that is something that is totally contrary to this doctrine which we call the church, the holy Catholic or universal church. In the Apostles' Creed, we say that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic church. Now, that's not saying that we believe in the Pope. 
as the authority. And that's not saying that we believe in the Holy Roman Catholic Church, but that means that we believe in the Church Universal. And that's what's taught in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Let's look at that at page 935, and then we'll keep that open because we'll refer back again to it. Page 935. This is of the Church, chapter 25, and I'll read most of sections 1 and 2. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been or or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion. Um, We're going to kind of go back and forth a little bit. I'm not going to read the rest of section 2, but we're going to go back and forth in studying the distinction between what we call the visible and invisible church. Um, Notice that the visible church, section 2, was very limited in the beginning. It was only one nation. Israel, that was the only visible church throughout the entire world. God had one chosen people. But now we have a holy religion that's spread throughout the world. It's expanded as that gospel has gone forth. Remember in John's gospel, uh, Jesus told uh, the Samaritan woman that they would not worship on one mountain or another or not in Jerusalem, but everywhere people would worship the Lord who called upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that's a very brief paraphrase. But uh, as we looked here in in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, actually uh, verse 2, he's addressing his letter to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So he's addressing a physical church at a physical location, namely in Corinth, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Obviously, this is talking about the visible church. It's a church body there in a particular place in time and history. His letter, notice, uh, it was not intended only for those Christians there in Corinth. And honestly, I didn't notice this until today. It's addressed to all believers. It says... It's addressed to all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. This language here is very similar to the language that we have in section 2, that the visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion, or all those who call upon Christ uh, and profess him as their Lord. That's a visible church. Now, We may differ in many doctrines with other believers in our community and in our United States and throughout the world. We may differ on baptism, on the mode of baptism, when baptism should be applied and to who. We might differ even on the doctrine of election. However, all those who truly by faith who call upon the name of the Lord are part of this broader church 
Um, so in other words, the church Catholic or the church universal consists more than what's in these walls. It's beyond what is even beyond the OPC and even beyond our sister denominations like the Presbyterian Church in America or other Reformed denominations. Anybody, even though we disagree with doctrine, who calls upon the name of the Lord is part of the church visible, this church Catholic or universal. Again, it's not just our baptism that God recognizes. He recognizes the baptism, that sacrament of baptism of all those who, even if we don't agree with the way it's applied, it, it, it's still legitimate in God's sight. Section 2 goes on and says, The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal. This is the church which is referred to as the church as mankind sees it. When we see a body of believers, we say this is the church visible. That's how man sees it. Section 1, the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect. Some would say that this is the way that the church is seen as in God's sight. We can't look at individuals and say, I am absolutely certain that person's elect, and that person's elect, but this person is not, and this person is not. God knows for certain who is and is not. So this is the church only as God sees it. Um, the first church that I joined outside of the Catholic Church was in the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, Reformed Presbyterian denomination in Monroe, Louisiana. They, after I moved out of the area, moved to South Louisiana, and then later on moved to New Jersey, they later on moved out of the PCA and moved into their own um, denomination and caused a split and actually caused a great demise of the PCA churches here in the state of Louisiana, a big controversy known as Federal Vision. And one of the strange distinctions of their teaching of this group was that they did away with the visible-invisible church distinction. Now, you, you realize that in this confession, there is a visible and invisible church distinction. The church as God sees it, which is the elect, and then we have the church body as man sees it. Well, they had strange doctrines in this denial. Um, they said that if, if you were a member of a sound biblical church, you could be united to Christ by faith. Yet, if for some reason you were disciplined and you became unrepentant and had to be excommunicated, you could lose that faith. In other words, you could be united to Christ in a saving manner, yet use that saving, yet lose that saving union with Christ. That's a kind of scary thing, isn't it? That does total destruction to the doctrine, the reformed doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Um, that's a, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that they used to uphold, uh, to deny this visible, invisible church distinction. And let's look at John 15. The Gospel of John 15, starting at verse 4. This is a key passage for them. 
Jesus uses an illustration. Actually, I'm not going to pick up at verse 4. I'm going to start at verse 1 because that's where the illustration begins. Um, John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And we'll stop there. So here's the illustration. They would say, a believer is one who's abiding in Christ, like a branch from the vine. You're united to Christ. But the text here says some branches are cut off and thrown in the fire. So here is a case where someone's united to Christ with saving faith, but gets cut off and then thrown into the fire. So here, this is the proof text, they say, that a person can have a saving union with Christ, yet be thrown away into the fire and, and actually suffer hellfire. Well, is that what this passage is saying? Well, why not look at it as that a person here who's abiding in Christ, maybe, is someone who is a person who is cut off and thrown away, is only in the visible church, but not truly in the invisible church with this eternal saving union. That's one way to understand it. But again, this interpretation that they would have of this text totally destroys the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That doctrine of the perseverance of the saints found in John 10, uh, 27 and following, it's there in your outline, says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I don't know about you, but I think this passage in John 10, who also wrote John who also recorded the words of Christ in John 15. Uh, this passage in John 10 indicates that what Jesus is saying here is that if you have a saving union, you cannot lose it. If you have a saving union, no one can snatch you out of his hand. You, can't, you cannot have both interpretations their interpretation of chapter 15 and the interpretation of eternal security mentioned in chapter 10. You cannot have both. So how do we understand it? A key passage, and I know I cite this one in a reasonable amount of times, but a key passage is found in that first epistle of John, also in your outline, 1 John 2.19. The same John who wrote this letter, um, or who, who recorded the words of Christ, wrote this letter here in First um, John 2.19, which says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. So rather than what the federal visionists would teach, that a person can have a true saving union with Christ, be united to Christ, be engrafted into the vine, have saving union, yet lose that saving union, what does John say here? They never had it in the first place. A person who is in the church, who later on leaves the church and lives the rest of their life in an unrepentant way and never goes back to the church and dies in unbelief, they never had a saving union with Christ in the first place. So all this is to show that the Westminster Confession of Faith distinction of a visible and invisible church distinction is the most sound way to understand the nature of the church. It's a very sound uh, distinction that I think takes the Bible as a whole for the best. Now, a person who was in the church for a time, a person who was part of the visible church for a time, who made a profession of faith in the true religion, yet later on turned and died in unbelief, you could say they were part only of the visible church. In the end, the evidence is that they were never part of the, they were, they were part of the visible church, yet never truly part of the invisible church. Okay, section two. It goes on to state the importance of the visible church and who belonged to it. It says that the visible church, and then you skip on a little bit, consists of all those throughout the world who profess the true religion and their children. So the confession is pointing out that the children of the covenant, not just believers, but the children of the covenant also belong to the visible church. And the two passages, classic passages in Scripture that, that show this, is in Genesis 17, 7. God told Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout all their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. This is repeated and taken up in, in Acts chapter 2 at the, at the Pentecost sermon when Peter says to the Jews, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is not just for you, but for you and your children, your children after you, right? Now, having children raised in the covenant within the visible church is not an absolute saving union. There's a promise of a saving union. Parents are instructed to teach their kids and to raise them up in the holy faith, to pray for their children. We make vows that we are to pray with and for our children and to teach them the, the, the faith of Christ. That's what parents do when they baptize a child. They make those vows before the Lord to uphold that promise. So there's, there's a promise that children... God will save and bring them up in the faith. However, it will not come to fruition unless that child embraces the faith that they're taught when they grow up. But think about it this way. 
if you are a member in the visible church, a member in the visible church, you also have a promise of salvation. It's not absolute. You have to embrace the faith that is taught to you with saving faith. You can't just say, well, I'm a member of a church, therefore I'm saved. You likewise have to embrace the faith that is taught to you. It's a promise of salvation to belong to the visible church. But unless you, unless you belong to the invisible church, you will not be eternally saved. All right. Let's uh, move on. We are not saved by merely having a part, again, of the visible church. However, section 2 stresses the importance of being a part of a visible Catholic or universal church. It says the Catholic or universal church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Why is there ordinarily no possibility of salvation outside the church? It's because the means of grace are in the church. What are the means of grace? The ordinary or the, the, uh, the regular primary means of grace? The word of God, read and preached, the sacraments and prayer. Those are the primary means of grace. Let's look at Romans 10. Romans 10 goes on and talks about how men and women and children are saved. We'll start at verse 11. Uh, actually, we'll back it up to verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So how do we first hear the gospel? By a preacher. Where do we find preachers? Very typically in a church. Now you can maybe hear a preacher in some other venue, but very Often, the, the word of God preached is found within the walls of the church. And how do we come to believe in that gospel and be saved? It's by the preaching of the word of God. That's why um, being a member of the church is the means by which we are ordinarily brought unto salvation. Now, um, I'm going to ask a question here. What if somebody... It, is listening to preaching over the radio, preaching over the TV, preaching over the internet. Can they be saved by such preaching? Yes, they can. But that's not the ordinary way. It's not the ordinary way according to section 2. 
If you love Jesus Christ, you will inevitably love his bride, his church. One of the evidences that you have a love for God is you love his church. One of the means by which God will look at us in our, upon that day of judgment and will see the evidences of our love is whether or not we had a love for the church. Did you love those who were called according to his name? Um, it's vital for you to pursue church membership with the visible church. Yet, at the same time, according to Second uh, Peter 1, be all the more diligent to be certain about his calling and choosing you. It's right to pray and dig- diligently endeavor to say, I believe that I am not just part of the visible church, but I'm part of the invisible church as well. That I'm one of God's elect. Again, the invisible church is that church that consists of the whole number of the elect that have been or or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof. Um, One of the things that the Federal Vision people would dog in Holy Scripture, I don't know that's a good word to use in preaching, but one of the things that they would denigrate in Holy Scripture is what they called morbid introspection. What's morbid introspection? Well, I think what they're calling morbid introspection is exactly what they are putting a caricature for self-examination. There, the scripture calls us to self, towards self-examination, but they call that morbid, like gross, disgusting introspection. They, they, doesn't the scripture tell us to, to look, look at ourselves? It's not morbid. It's what scripture commands. How could it be morbid? Scripture tells us, be all the more diligent to be certain about his calling and choosing you. Second Peter 1. And then again, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? In other words, are you sure Christ is in you? Are you sure the Spirit of Christ is within you? Well, how do you know the Spirit of Christ is within you? Do you listen to the words of Christ? Jesus says, if you hear his voice, you will follow him. If you follow him, it's a, that's a good means in which that shows that you are a member of uh, the, the, the true body of Christ. Now, what the Jews did is they made what we call a covenant presumption. Well, we are sons of Abraham, aren't we? Just because they're descendants of Abraham. As if being a descendant of Abraham automatically brought them into a saving relationship with God the Father with the triune God. But that's not the case. You can call that covenant presumption. They presume just because they had a relationship, an outward relationship in the visible church, that they were automatically saved. But unless you have faith, you shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So it's covenant presumption to say, I'm all right with God because I'm a member of X, Y, and Z church. I'm automatically saved because I'm a member of a church. Well, unless you have saving faith, no, you're not. 
you're a member of the church, and that means that the promise is yours if you embrace it by faith. If you receive the word of God, if you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you shall have eternal life. But the scripture says, test yourselves to see if the spirit of Christ is in you. I'm going to close with this one illustration. Pastor Al Morton, uh, I don't know if it was Dr. Al Morton, but he was a Pastor Al Morton. I believe he's gone to be with the Lord, not 100% sure, but he had an illustration that if you have a dollar bill, which you're wondering whether it's a fake or not, you know, you have to, sometimes you take that dollar bill out and you've got to take one of these pens or something, or some people have to look at it in the light and there's a certain watermark or something of that sort. But if you, if you do whatever technique is necessary to mark it up or do whatever to validate that it's not a fake but it's authentic, it only gains value. So for a believer to test themselves to see whether they are truly in the faith or not, it only gains value in your Christian walk. It's not something that's morbid. It's not something that's disgusting. It's something that Scripture commands. It's not good enough to just say, I'm part of the outward visible church. You have to be part of that visible, invisible church that has a true saving faith. And again, part of your walk as a Christian is to test yourselves, to examine yourselves, to diligently make your calling and election sure. Let's pray together. Our blessed Lord, we ask that you would help us to not presume upon the covenant that we are automatically in a saving relationship just because we are a member of a church, but help us to examine ourselves, to test ourselves whether Christ is truly in us. Forgive us of our sins. We do thank you that Jesus Christ died for sinners such as us, and we pray that we would not only trust in his saving work to, to wash away all our sins, but, Lord, that we would trust that he has perfectly obeyed your commandments and your law, and he's accounted that righteousness unto us. But as we examine ourselves, Lord, help us to be uh, sound in testing ourselves to see whether we're in the faith Lord, to examine ourselves to see whether we're demonstrating fruit of righteousness, that fruit that demonstrates that we are a good tree bearing good fruit of the holy faith that you've given us. Lord, help us in this calling and bless this, your church, for we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.